pastel de nata. Churros. Brigadeiro. Calzone. Apple pie. 水煮肉片. Bangers and mash. Toad in the hole. Paella. Hello, did you miss me? Huh? Yes? No? Anyway, welcome back for another episode of Turning Chickens and Breaking Dishes. My name is David G. Martins, or David Guimanez Martins, and I'm the executive chef for the European Union Embassy in Washington, D.C. And as always, if this is your first time listening, let me explain to you why my podcast has this exceptional name. I'm originally from Portugal, and I've been living in Washington, D.C. for the last nine years. And the name of the podcast refers to two Portuguese phrases. Turning chickens means someone that has a lot of experience, and breaking dishes means someone that has exceeded all expectations. I'll be asking my guests if they've been turning more chickens or breaking more dishes. Every episode I'll have a guest and we'll talk about everything related to food, not necessarily ingredients or dishes, but how through food we can help communities, the success of small business owners, the fascinating stories that we remember growing up with our family sitting around the table, and even what's the best breakfast ever, and much more. Don't forget to subscribe to my podcast on all the platforms you have access to. Follow me on Instagram at Turning Chickens Breaking Dishes and follow the Facebook page Turning Chickens and Breaking Dishes. If you want to support this podcast, go to anchor.fm slash david-martins. Also, I want to mention that some interviews were recorded in a different microphone, so sometimes if the interview has a different audio, that's the reason. I hope you enjoy to every episode. And don't forget, I'm Portuguese, so if something doesn't sound exactly right, you know, just pretend you understand. My guest today is a New Yorker, a director, producer, a food and lifestyle photographer, internationally recognized workshop instructor, and a columnist. He is a weekly contributor to the New York Times and has worked with Apple, Adobe, Haas Corporation, and Clarkson Potter, just to name a few. His book, That Photo Makes Me Hungry, Photographing Food for Fun and Profit, was launched in 2019. His motto is, work hard, be nice. Andrew Scrivani, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. How are you today? I'm doing really well. Thanks so much. Two important questions. Since I'm from Portugal, I ask this to every guest. Uh, have you ever been to Portugal? No, I have not, but I'm a surfer and I am fascinated with Nazare. That was the biggest so, wave ever. Biggest, biggest yes. wave ever. It is the biggest beach break on the planet and it is terrifying to watch. I would never even attempt to get out there uh, <laughs> when it's firing off in the winter. But yep. I'm thinking maybe when there's some smaller waves, I can go and say I surf Nazare and then I can get some street cred. My, I have two brothers. They're all about water sports, basically. And my older brother, he surfs every day. He invi- Every time I go back to Portugal, he invites me. But that's just something I can do. But yeah, Nazare has a record for that, the biggest wave. Do you know any Portuguese words at all? Not really. No. I mean, maybe I do, but I haven't... Uh... I studied Spanish. I studied Spanish in school. I know that there's some parallels, but they're rather different languages. It's okay. That's normally the common answer. So it's okay. Where uh, did your passion for photography and especially food photography come from? Well, it's it's sort of a combination of two things. I spent an inordinate amount of time with my grandparents growing up in a multi-generational immigrant household where there were my great-grandmother, my grandmother, my grandfather, uncles, aunts, and there was a lot of cooking going on all the time. So I spent a lot of time either observing people cook or participating in cooking, and I learned an awful lot. And then uh, phase two of that was uh, when I was 18, I decided to eat vegetarian for a while. And my mother was like, uh, you're going to learn to cook your own food because I'm going <laughs> to cook the food that we eat and you can eat what you want. And around that same time, I met my best friend, who is still my best friend 35 years later. 
who was studying to be a photographer at the School of Visual Arts. And I happened to be going to school across the street at a city college in New York City called Baruch College, part of the city university system. And I spent a lot of time on that campus with my friend in studios, learning about cameras, learning about photography. So the combination of those two things, it took a while to germinate. And then when I was in my early 30s, I really started to put those two things together and turned it into a career. Did you always have this specific area of food photography that you wanted to focus on or not really? No, food photography kind of happened by accident. I happened to be getting some news assignments for the New York Times back in the early 2000s. And a couple of them seemed to focus around food, going out to photograph a restaurant, go out and photograph uh, a grocery store. So I got in tight with the photo department of the New York Times food section who saw me as a reliable guy. It wasn't like it is now where there was a, this high demand for studio photography. Most of it was out in the field. I was in the right place at the right time when the food section started to really kind of gravitate towards uh, beauty photography. And I was getting assignments. And then I was asked at one point, could you cook something and photograph it? And I was like, of course, I know how to cook. And that's the thing that sort of launched the entirety of my career was the fact that I could do the whole production. Like I could cook the food, I could style and plate the food, and then I could photograph the food. So that's really where the turning myself from a news photographer into a food photographer happened. Do you remember what did you cook or no? When yeah, they asked I do. What was it? it was, um, do you know what juke? Uh, now, juke is the Korean word. My wife is Korean. Kanji is the, yeah, con the, uh -huh. yeah, the kanji is the, the Chinese word for yes. um, rice porridge. So it was a horrible thing to have to photograph. I mean, it was just it had no color. It has no shape. It's just mush in a bowl. And, <laughs> um, and I was like, well, the only way I'm going to make this look interesting is if I, if I light it interesting, yeah. in an interesting way. And that's what I did. And that was sort of became my signature along the way was even if food didn't look great, I can make it look interesting because I knew how to light things really well. So that's sort of where that was born. How do you elevate a food picture? So for instance, you know, nowadays, I think more and more, you probably will know this better than I do, but even restaurants try at its best to plate food very well, right? Look very beautiful. But how important is your job to elevate that picture? Or there's sometimes that you look at a plate or something and you think like, there's not a whole lot I can do here. But how can you elevate a food picture from being, I know, great to wonderful? Well, I think part of it is understanding the motivation behind the food itself and understanding the emotion and the origin story of the food. So if I feel like I've always been a storyteller. My, my, my background is in writing and literature. And I always felt like everything about what I do as a creative has to be involved around the story. So I think making food look precious doesn't really tell me anything about the food. It's pretty, but it has no depth. So a lot of times I talk about photographing food within the continuum. So you as a chef, your narrative with food begins when you pick out the ingredients, right? Yes. Or you develop the recipe and then pick out the ingredients. So there's a narrative storytelling that's happening when you're plating, you're creating and plating food for a diner. And you're telling your part of your story of, even if it's just the story of that dish, it doesn't have to be something historical. It doesn't have to be something innately personal. But the creation of something like a recipe or something unique has a story. And I try mm -hmm. to get inside that story as an artist. I try to get inside that story because I feel like that's where the heart of it lies. And that's what, whether I'm experiencing your food watching you cook it, or I'm experiencing your food as a diner at a table, 
or as an observer to somebody like the waiter or somebody else who's watching diners enjoy the food, there's a narrative story happening there. And if I can inject myself as an artist into that and understand parts and pieces of that narrative and bring that to the audience, it feels very authentic. It feels like something real. And I think that's the thing that elevates really good food photography is that you can envision yourself inside that narrative. Do you believe at the end results, because you like to be inside of that story, inside of that narrative, when you photograph something, the outcome of that for a normal person they'll, they'll, will have more depth than just a regular person who goes there, takes a picture, and that's it? Do you think... At the end of the day, it's two pictures, but do you think because you enjoy the process and you want to be part of the process, do you think at the end people can see that? I think people can see intention uh, in art. And I think that when there is intention in art, there's something beyond the beauty, right? And I think that's something that everyone can take a great picture of food once. Something that's really beautiful, it speaks for itself. Often I'm that guy. Often I see something, it comes right out of the oven or it comes right off the stovetop. And I'm like, That doesn't need another thing. It's beautiful just the way it is. But I do think that with all art, there has to be intention, right? So when you go into an art gallery, and I spent a lot of time in museums as a child. I grew up in New York City, and my family, you know, there were members of my family who were very much into art. And you go in and you stand in front of a painting that's just the color blue. And at first you say to yourself, is this really art? What is this blue thing on the thing. And then you understand that there's an artist that has intention to do something very specific to make you feel a certain way. And even if that feeling is, I'm going to make you feel uneasy standing in front of this, there was intention there. And I do think that that's the thing that separates really good food photography, any photography really, but any good food photography from ordinary food photography is intention. How has evolving photographic technology affected your profession? That's a great question because it's everything. I only, um, I only ask one good question per podcast. So this is my good question. <laughs> <laughs> so now you can answer yes. <laughs> oh, excellent. Right. That's, that's fantastic. I do think that the technology in photography in particular has affected food photography maybe more so than any other sort of subgenre of photography because food photography was an extraordinarily expensive endeavor when we shot film. I also think that the lighting technology and the drive towards learning how and having spaces to shoot in daylight really changed food photography. So the advent of digital photography and the advent of either using daylight for food or using LED lighting and something that's a cooler lighting to not ruin the food. And also the idea of using real food versus prop food for food photography. Those three things both decision-making and or aided by technology. So, you know, when I'm shooting a digital camera, I can take a thousand pictures, look at the back of the screen, tether it to a computer, see what's working, see what's not working. And it doesn't cost me another penny to do yeah. it that way. Back in the day when we shot film, we would have to shoot Polaroids. You would look at that, you, you know, you couldn't do it in daylight because everything took so much time that the daylight would change so fast. So I think the speed, the, the efficiency has changed the entire sort of art form into something that is what we see now, which is now still being aided by technology with cell phones, LED lighting that's at a very high level. You know, I can create photographs with my iPhone right now that are better than the photographs I took with my original DSLR. So, yeah. you know, it's a remarkable 20 years in an art form that basically found its footing in the mid 2010, 2010s or whatever. 
Do you feel there's more amateurs entering your market because of the ease of the new technology? I think it's twofold. I think that there's that's true. There are definitely more amateurs and sort of less skilled professionals. You know, I put quotations around professionals because I think anybody who gets paid to do photography could, can consider themselves a professional, but then there's the level of professionalism. But I do think that the, the nature of advertising, the nature of social media, content production, the need for more content has sort of put a lot of pressure on the industry because I don't work as much as some other people because I'm much too expensive for certain types of work. And I think that's both a blessing and a curse. I mean, I think in some ways there are people, why would you hire me to do something that you can hire an amateur or a young professional to do that you don't necessarily need the level of quality or storytelling that I'm doing? And I do think there's a lot of that going on out there. But unfortunately, that's bled into higher, higher range kind of advertising and content creation. And it's affected the business as a whole. Now, I don't know whether that's going to swing back and they're going to rely more heavily on professional photographers again in the food industry. But I do think that it has definitely moved in the direction of one-off kind of get a cheap photographer to do a job for me, then move on to the next cheap photographer and move on to the next cheap photographer. And there's never any consistency to the visuals because, and this is why we see what blogs and Instagram look like now. It's homogenized. And I've spoken on this on a number of occasions. Disappoints me because when you look at talent that's out there, and there's some very, very talented people, everybody's being sort of homogenized into a very uniform look on across media. And I feel like there has to be some pushback at some point, and we'll start to move away from that again. But boy, has it been boring for quite quite a few years. <laughs> how do you break that? How do you scale back and be like, how do you change that? The narrative, well, even in the media, yeah. Here, you know, I when I work with my clients now, I give them what I want. I mean, I give them what they want, and then I give them what I want, and I let them choose. And for a number of years, I've continued to do that. And there are on occasion the times when they choose the photos that are not the norm, because what I've created is better than what they thought. So it's really about sticking to your guns and continuing to include in your edit and while you're shooting. Pictures, not just the pictures that your client wants you to make, but the pictures that you want to make. And I do continually push my agenda, if you want to say, because there was a lot of years that nobody ever questioned my agenda. And now there's a much more focus, a, a bigger focus on art direction and uh, what do you say, institutional uniformity. All of the photographers are shooting very similarly so that there's some kind of uniformity to the Instagram feed, to the website, to the magazine, to the newspaper whatever it might be. That wasn't always the case. Currently, we're in that mode where institutional uniformity is the sort of way of the world. And I do think that we will start to see a break from that. I think that there's a lot of things happening in the world of media right now that are being questioned, including the idea that there's only certain kinds of people that you see on videos. There's only certain kinds of people that can make videos. There's only certain kind of people that make photography. There's only kind of people that you see their face in advertising. All of that's changing right now. And with mm -hmm. that will come artists pushing their agenda and getting a little bit more seen outside of the institutional kind of conformity. Can a food photographer be a bad, for example, landscape photographer? Or the skills are translating to both? 
It depends. I mean, I tend to see food photography as a macro version of other types of photography. I know that composition and color and shape, if you understand the concepts, the basic tenets of photography, you can translate that to many things. Architectural photography, a lot of times reminds me of food photography in that we are trying to achieve very similar things in, three, in photographing something in three dimensions and giving it three-dimensional feel. So I do think that there's a link between those things. And I do think that if you have a particular skill for a particular type of photography, you should go with it and run with it. I know that sometimes people try to put round pegs in square holes. They're like, I really love portrait photography, but I'm a much better reportage photographer. So I need to decide, am I going to just keep plugging away at something that I love, but I'm not great at? or embrace the thing that I'm really great at and that yeah. I, don't have to tr- I don't have to try as hard to make it beautiful. I think that there's, there's room for everybody. And I do think you should experiment with different types of photography, but whatever the calling is and how it comes to you, you should listen. How often are you working with a food stylist and how much do you style yourself? You know, and during the pandemic, I've been doing all of my own styling again, which has been very strange for me because I've been working with food stylists for over a decade. And when I'm in my own studio, I'm pretty self-contained. I have my own props. I have my own gear. My life partner works with me. You know, she's extraordinarily involved in my work. So as a two-person team, we can pretty much do all of those things that need to be done. I feel badly for my stylists because I wish I could be working with them right now, but unfortunately it's just not possible because yeah. of the nature of where, you know, the world we're in right now. So I've had to kind of recall a lot of the old skills and a lot of the things that I've done in the past and kind of fire up the kitchen and get back in there and get dirty again. It has inspired me though, because I've started doing uh, as part of my educational work, a show on creative live once a week, it's actually in a couple of hours where I cook something, I teach the audience how to cook something, and then I take it over to the table and I show them how to shoot it. So it's called the Work From Home Cafe. It's every Monday at 3 p.m. Eastern time, and I do it every week. And it's sort of a lead in to all the classes I teach at a Creative Live. So if you like me, like my personality, and you like what I'm doing, then obviously you can jump over and like purchase my classes or things like that. But it is, it is a way for me to sort of share with the audience that as a photographer, I am deeply involved in the whole process of developing recipes at times, cooking, styling, plating, and shooting the food. So it's good to be intimate with your subject matter so that you can be better at your job. It always goes back to the narrative, right? You, you do enjoy, like you always say, the whole process from start to finish. Do you ever feel a little frustrated because when someone buys a cookbook, they're buying for the chef normally. But the big draw is always the pictures. Do you feel like you miss out on some of the credit? You know, part of that could be handled in negotiation when you're negotiating with a chef or with a, a publishing company about That's having smart, your name yeah. about mm-hmm. having your name on the cover. You know, like I'm not blind to the fact that a lot of people come to me because of my reputation, because I've been in the New York Times for as long as I have, because I'm a recognizable name in food photography. That's not lost on me. That's leverage. So the reality is I understand that the, it's about the chef. I really do. Or the cookbook author or whoever I'm working with. But I also have to recognize that they're coming to me because I have value. And what I want in return is obviously to be paid for my work, but I also want credit on the cover. I would say about you know 80% of the time I get my way. That's been, you know, unless I'm just dealing with a monster entity, like when I 
photograph books for Disney, even though the last book I did for Disney, I actually got my name on the cover. So Mm -hmm. like, you know, I've done seven or eight books with them and I finally got my name on a cover. So, you know, the idea is if you, you know, you handle yourself in a particular way and you negotiate a particular way and you're always respectful, eventually you can get those things that are of value to you. It's their creation. But, you know, sharing the credit a little bit, you know, sometimes you got to push, yeah. push the issue a little bit. Do you feel it's a shift that photographers, photographers are doing more and more? They want to have that credit on the cover? Yeah, yeah. because, you know, some of us have our own following. You know, mm-hmm. we, we have a, a large Instagram following or a large uh, blog following. And I do think that you, with that comes value. And it gives you the uh, opportunity to set some ground rules around how you're going to do your work. And if people understand and respect that, then uh, it's a good working relationship. What's the best advice for a future food photographer you can give? You need to learn your craft. I mean, you need to understand food. You need to understand that it's about relationships. Visually, you may already be there. A lot of you are when you're in the business. You're like, you already understand how to take the picture. But there's so much more to the process is you need to understand how to deal with clients on set. You need to to deal with your billing, your negotiations the business of photography. You know, being an artist a lot of times means you're not a really good business person. And I do think that, yes, you spend most of your time learning the craft of photography. But once you've kind of formulated a style and you know how to do the work, then it's about learning the rest, production, negotiations, dealing with clients, managing expectations, billing, you know, all of these things are very, very important to maintain yourself as an artist. Otherwise, you're going to do the work. People are going to take advantage of the fact that you're good at your job. And then they're also not going to respect the fact that you didn't understand your worth. So I guess if you want to boil it down to a soundbite, know your worth. <laughs> <laughs> What's at least one thing you can tell people stop doing it? Because it just, it just really gets to you. It's just like, I can't. Be like, do not stop taking a picture this way. Well, I do think that it is really about subject matter that bothers me the most is Mm -hmm. that rather than it's sort of like the picking of the low hanging fruit, which is the greasy, drippy cheeseburger or, you know, like this sort of food that is either fast food or masquerading as real food, but it really is fast food glorification of that type of food. I think that's the thing that we as a society have a problem with, you know, we have a problem with obesity. We have a problem with, you know, low quality foods being given and and sold to underprivileged people. And we're glorifying this type of food over and over and over again, where I think that as a food photographer, I feel a responsibility to share real food with people, good food with people, good ingredients, you know, things that are healthy, things that are meaningful, things that have soul. And I do think that there's a lot of people who get a lot of followers and get a lot of likes for things that, for me, feel like there's an issue with the morality of it, glorifying kind of fast or, you know, unhealthy food is the thing that sort of bothers me about our profession. What was your first memory of taste? Wow, that's a great one. My first memory of taste it sort of goes with the memory of smell. They sort of go together for me. And a mm-hmm. lot of it has to do with the basil growing in my grandmother's garden. I just, I remember this being filled up with that flavor and that smell and that sort of experience. And I, I, I have a hard time disconnecting 
smell from flavor a lot of times. I have a, a nose like a bloodhound. I can smell <laughs> stuff. and uh, <laughs> So I do think that that sort of the experience of food from the garden as a child, whether that be tomatoes or basil or the things that my Italian grandmother was growing in the garden, I think that's my first memory of taste. Most underrated ingredients for you? Underrated? Yeah, that's a good one. Capers, maybe. I think capers bring so much to so much flavor. I think it's probably either capers or anchovy. Anchovy is probably a little bit more like beaten down. Like people are a little afraid of uh, of anchovies. So I would say those two things are things that add layers of flavor to food when I'm cooking, and when I'm and, and if I'm designing a recipe, I try to cook in layers. And I think things like capers and uh, they're very complex in and of themselves. So if I had to take a pick, you know, on second thought, it would definitely be anchovy because I think more people hate and are afraid of anchovies. And, and they're very would, afraid. Yeah. And that would feed into the uh, underrated category. So, yeah. Overrated ingredients? Uh, sugar. I think that people rely on sugar very often to, to mask the lack of other, the other components that make a really good dish. So, like, sometimes when, if you're not doing the, you know, salt, acid, fat, heat, balance and you're not doing it properly i think a lot of times people replace particularly the uh, acid with sugar and i think that when you add more sugar to food obviously people are going to be attracted to it but it sort of just drowns everything else out if you could choose the best breakfast ever i love like a traditional sort of european breakfast you know like a baguette a beautifully you know made baguette with a little bit of cheese and a little bit of so I'm like, I, I love that type of a breakfast uh, where I can have a nice piece of bread, a little bit of cheese, a little bit of jam, a little bit of butter, some coffee, and it just feels very satisfying. And that's probably right where I like to live. The, I call the WTF combination, the strangest combination that some people might do it that you, you just can't accept it. Seafood and cheese. You know, I think I'm more, a little bit more traditional when it comes to Italian cooking in particular, and I have a hard time understanding how for most dishes that people will sprinkle cheese on a pasta dish that has... Yeah, Itali- that's a big no for Italian seafoods. It passed with cheese now. That's true. Yeah, so that's, I would say that's one of those. What, what are you doing? So the name of the podcast is Turning Chickens and Breaking Dishes. So that's two Portuguese quotes. Turning chickens means someone that has a lot of experience and breaking dishes means someone that succeeds expectations in life. Do you think you've been turning more chickens or breaking more dishes? Oh, I've absolutely broken lots of dishes. That's, I think I came at this underestimating myself. I think I came at this underest- being under, underestimated along the way many, many times. I've had this discussion with my wife a, a lot lately in, in the conversations of social justice and some of the other things that we discuss at home, being a multiracial household. And I felt like as an Italian-American, second generation, growing up in New York, in the boroughs, used to formally having a very heavy accent. I felt like there were times when I was underestimated, you know, my intelligence or my work ethic or whatever it might have been. And so I do think that I have used that as motivation to continue to try to out take people by surprise with my with my ability. Yeah, I do think that I've overachieved in a lot of ways. This is the sell your fish part, which in Portuguese means basically talk about yourself. (laughs) <laughs> What's the plans for the future for you, where people can find you, just to wrap mm-hmm. it up everything? Yeah, sure. 
Well, I'm, you can find me very easily if you can spell my name. I'm on Instagram. I'm on uh, uh, Twitter. I'm pretty much everywhere. If you can spell Andrew Scrivani and put that together into one word, that's me pretty much everywhere on social, including YouTube. I have been involved in the film industry for the past four years. I've made, produced two films, uh, one which will be hopefully out streaming to your home in around Thanksgiving of this year. That's called Team Marco. It's a family film full-length feature. I've also just recently, uh, last summer, a short film called Ten Shots. I was producer on that. Currently working on about four scripts with my team, Borough Five Pictures, which is my uh, business partner, the writer-director, Julio Vincent Gambudo, and our writing partner, Barack Wazoon. We've been working together during the pandemic, creating all new scripts. We have four new film scripts. We have two television scripts, including some, some other projects that we're working on, book projects. So uh, as a creative team, we've been pretty prolific in the, during the pandemic, and we're hoping to get back into production, hopefully early 2021. We have funding for two more features, and uh, we can't wait to get back on set. So that's as far as uh, my photography work. I have a book coming out with uh, Disney about the Golden Girls, Golden Girls Cookbook. It's a <laughs> famous TV show back in yeah. the 80s in, New York, uh, in, uh, in the U.S. That's coming out soon. I also continue to work with the New York Times on the David Tannis and uh, Yotam Adolengi columns that have come out every month. So, um, and, you know, just whatever comes here and there. I just recently worked a consultant on a television commercial. I was up to direct a few commercials before the pandemic began. So once we get into regular life again, who knows what's out there. But I got my irons in a lot of fires, including my educational stuff. So I try to keep really busy. And a lot of surfing. And a lot, a lot of, of surfing. The surfing keeps me, keeps me sane. Absolutely keeps me sane. What's the best so, time to surf for you? I like the late afternoon okay. when the waves are nice in the late afternoon because I like when the sun is going down. Plus when you surf on the East Coast, if you go in the morning, you're looking out toward the waves and the sun is in your face. So it's sort of harder to pick up waves that way. So like in the late afternoon, the sun is on the other. I still think like a photographer, right? I, <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't want the waves to be backlit because I can't see them. I want them to be, I want them to be uh, either side or front lit so I can actually see the waves. Because I wear glasses, but I can't surf with glasses on. So I need okay. all the help I can get. Okay. Well, Andrew, this was a pleasure. I know you're very busy. Thank you very much for coming on the podcast. And I hope to talk again with you very soon. This was a pleasure. You asked very, and you asked more than one good question, by the way. Oh, so. thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> so take thank care you. of yourself. I hope to meet you in person one day. Thank you very much for listening to the episode. Today, Embassy Chef's Corner is all about protein, chicken, beef, lamb, etc. So let's start. My fellow Americans, let's be real here. Why every time you handle raw chicken, you power wash the whole kitchen afterwards? You put that yellow tape, caution, not cross. You wear that like mask and suit, plastic suit. Why is that, huh? Let's stop being dramatic, okay? Just take care of the chicken, wash your hands afterwards, wash your board, wash your knife, and that's it. Every time you cook any protein, you should never cook straight from the fridge. Beef, ideally one hour before you cook it, leave it on the countertop. Of course, if you're going to grill it outside, don't leave it outside because a raccoon will take it. Poultry about 15 minutes, pork about 20 minutes, and lamb about 30 minutes. This allows the meat not being so tough when you cook it. Also, don't forget to rest your protein after you cook it. You want all the juices to go from the sides to the center. If you cut too soon, all the juices will come out, so let it rest. Don't forget every time your protein rests, it keeps increasing the internal temperature. So for beef, this part is super important. So always take your steak out of the grill 10 to 15 Fahrenheit before the desired temperature. 
and finally buy a thermometer one of the best things to have in the kitchen and it's always spot on no mistakes that's what i have to offer today about the embassy chef's corner i want to thank all of you for the feedback about the podcast i'm so so grateful for the amount of love this podcast has received so obrigado for that don't forget i release an episode every tuesday and friday of each week so stay tuned all the time Don't forget to subscribe and share the podcast. If you have any questions, my email address is info at turningchickensandbreakingdishes.com. Tell your friends all about the chickens we are turning and the dishes we are breaking. I would love for you to send me a message and perhaps ask me a question that I can answer on the Embassy Chef's Corner. So you can find me also on Instagram at turningchickensbreakingdishes or on the Facebook page turningchickensandbreakingdishes. If you want to support this podcast, you can go to anchor.fm slash david-martins. Have a lovely weekend. Adios.